Hello, I'm Somia Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher, author, filmmaker, and the founder of Impeak. In this podcast, I speak with innovators at the forefront of emerging technologies. My guest on today's podcast is Ryan Carson, former COO of Proof Collective, and someone who has been deeply involved in the space from early days before going on to create his own NFT venture fund, 121G. I first got to know about Ryan when I won the raffle to mint a Moonbird. He was very active in the Moonbird Discord and Twitter and came into the Ladybird's channel and spoke to us. He was very attentive, kind and well-spoken. Later when he left Proof to start his own venture, I noticed that he was under a lot of scrutiny from the NFT community. People seem to analyze Ryan's every move and put, in my opinion, disproportionate weight on whatever he does and says. So I wanted to talk to him for myself and get to know him better and to ask him some of the common questions that the community had for him. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Ryan Carson. So Ryan, the first time I came across you was when I became a Moonbird and, uh, you know, you uh, were so kind. You were um, really just so communicative, so nice to us. You came into the Ladybird's channel. Literally within a few days after that, I heard that you were going to be leaving the Proof ecosystem and I was like, Oh, done. <laughs> you know, like you know, you were you were just so nice to us, and uh, and then you left. So, at what point did you know that you were going to be leaving? Did, uh, did you make that decision before uh, the Moonbird drop? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, um, and thanks for your kind words um, about uh, me and the community. Um, it was just so great to see women uh, come together in the Moonbirds community and and uh, support each other and and. Um, you know, Kevin and Justin and I always believed in making the space more inclusive. So that was, we were all in and supporting you all. And it was really good to see that. Um, so the timeline was kind of interesting because um, my last company was acquired in December of last year. And uh, Kevin Rose was my first investor. And so we'd, we'd been friends for, I think, like 16 years or something. And so I had been tracking him in the space and was listening to the Proof podcast and the Modern Finance podcast. And, and so uh, when my company was acquired, I, I pinged him, you know, and said, Hey, uh, this, this, uh, proof community sounds really fun and interesting. He said, great. Well, mint to pass and, and join. Um, I said, okay. So, uh, just join the community. Um, and I think as I got into the community, uh, I fell in love with it. You know, it was, um, such a wonderful creative community. And as I got more and more involved in that, I realized, gosh, I think, I think I want to do this full time. Um, and so I asked my wife one day, you know, I said, Hey, uh, what do you think if I ask Kevin, if I can join the team? And she's like, sure. You already, you already spent all your time in proof anyway. <laughs> so, um, so I think at that point, you know, I pinged Kevin and said, Hey man, you know, I know you're really busy. Uh, he was at true ventures full time. Um, you know, and I was like, I built companies, I built teams. Like, why don't I come on board as your COO and help you boot this thing up? And he said, great, let's rock and roll. So join the team and we didn't really know where we were going. I mean, it was like, we were building some fun stuff. We had no idea we we're going to do Moonbirds at that point. Um, and so we started building the community, uh, Justin, Kevin and I we launched Grails. And then um, uh, somewhere I, early on, I said, hey, Kevin, you know, I'd love to launch a fund on the side. Um, you know, I, I've been a CEO, a founder for 20 years. 
I, I, I'm deep in the NFT space now. Do you mind if I start a fund? And he said, sure. Yeah, go for it. You know, um, uh, you know, let me know what I can do. So, um, I started building, you know, laying the groundwork for 121G, my fund back then. And then, um, and then we did an offsite and we conceived of this idea of Moonbirds and we launched it and it was just way bigger than we ever thought. Um, you know, it was just, honestly, we were blown away. I mean, we thought it was going to work, but we had no idea how big it was going to be. And so I, I think at that point, um, you know, I launched, I, I think after the Moonbirds launched, I, I said, Hey everybody, my funds site is live now. And I think there's just a lot of confusion. Like, wait, is, is Ryan at proof and Moonbirds or is he running a fund or like what is happening here? And I think, uh, Kevin and Justin, and I just had kind of a, a friend to friend talk and said, you know, I don't know if I can do both, you know, proof and Moonbirds is going to be huge. Uh, Justin and Kevin were, were thinking about moving to LA. I live on the East coast. And uh, I was like, I can't move to LA with you all. You know, I just moved my family to the East Coast. Um, you know, Proof really needs a full-time COO from here out that can, you know, grow this company into billions of dollars of, of, you know, value. Why don't we, why don't I step back? You know, why don't you fill that seat with somebody else and we'll stay friends and I'll support you all. Uh, and, and we all just said, great, that makes sense. And it happened fast. I mean, and everything moves fast in this space. So I think at that point I decided to step back focus on 121G full-time, you know, cheer on Moonbirds uh, on the side. Um, and honestly, you know, Kevin, Justin, and I are still great friends. Um, you know, I still support Proof and Moonbirds. So it's all fine. I think the, the, the timing of it was confusing for people. Um, but it's also important people understand, like, I didn't take any money from the mint of Moonbirds. You know, I was simply paid a salary for being an employee. <laughs> I did get a small chunk of equity in Proof Holdings. It's less than 1%. So I didn't take any of all that, you know, millions and millions of dollars of mint money and go build a fund with. I just decided to to do my own thing. That's really clear to me. For some reason, um, it seems like it's it's not very clear to a lot of people, and uh, they still yeah. have quite a lot of questions. One of the things, one of the people who has created a very long thread on Twitter, some of his questions are interesting, but but a lot of them, it feels like he is almost suggesting that you have insider information. You say that you have less than 1% share in proof. Do you think there is some kind of conflict of interest with you buying proof assets for your fund? Do you think is that where the confusion is coming from? Or do you have like this Chinese wall with the, with the team now? Yeah, so there is a Chinese wall. Like I have no access to information. Uh, Kevin and Justin don't tell me anything. I, I, I haven't heard anything, you know, since I left the company. Um, so of course I have a vague understanding of you know what high rise is going to be and and uh, you know what the future is of proof, but it's very vague. And and honestly, it's nothing that everyone else doesn't know now. You know, Kevin and Justin have been very clear about hey, we're launching high rise. There's probably going to be a token. You know, we're doing this thing. We're going to do another bird drop, which is now it's, it's called Ravens. I didn't know that. Um, so, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. Like I told everybody for months that, you know, I believe in proof. I, I, I know the team, they're high quality when the funds, uh, launches, I'm going to invest in, in, in the proof ecosystem. So I've always been very transparent about what I'm going to do. And I did it. Um, I, I don't know where that kind of frustration comes from, from people, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing, I'm going over and above what I need to do to be legally compliant and morally compliant. 
you know, for instance, I sold all of my personal uh, proof NFTs and Moonbird NFTs before I launched the fund at great loss. You know, I, I literally sold at the bottom of the market um, so that it was, there would be no personal financial gain when the fund bought Moonbirds, right? So I've done everything legally and morally compliant and uh, I'm doing everything by the book. Um, you know, it's a legally compliant 506C fund with AngelList. Like, I just think people don't maybe understand how venture funding and venture investing works. I don't know if they understand the, the laws around investing or, or what's going on there, but um, I'm trying to move on to, towards you know, sophisticated investors who do understand these things that I can have great conversations with like you um, and kind of move past all, all of, um, honestly, the, the uh, misinformation uh, around what's going on. Do you think that, um, you know, you sold a lot of your assets um, and it must have been very hard to part with those assets because, you it know, they were, they were really unique, right? Um, do you think that holding on to that uh, less than 1% share, is that one of the things that is causing uh, or, or you've, you, you know, you've checked and you know that that's, that's fine? As oh, it's as 100% legally compliant. And the reason why is you, you have to disclose these things to your investors, which I did. Yeah. So in, in our documents, it says Ryan owns, you know, a, a, a less than 1% ownership in Proof Holdings Inc. And all my investors know it. Like the, yeah. there's just nothing to hide here, right? Yeah. Everybody knows. Uh, we're being legally compliant. There's no insider information. It's just um, I, crypto Twitter is a fascinating place, right? Because you have a, a broad range of people. You have people who have, you know, decades and decades of experience, you know, building companies, investing, uh, deploying capital. Uh, and then you have people that are brand new and everyone has kind of the same volume, right? And um, I, I think that's what's going on. And, and uh, I'm trying to help educate people like we launch a podcast uh every monday we try to interview a founder and it feels like nft shark tank and i only allow project founders on the show that are high quality that are fully docs that are experienced and i ask you know over 20 very difficult questions and my my goal is to number one identify potential projects for us to invest in but number two it help uh raise the collective intelligence of the entire industry by asking better questions um, and I, I want to sort of help people understand what questions they should be asking of projects before they invest their very hard-earned capital. Um, and uh, I, I think that's what we're doing. We had over 5,000 people tune into the first show. The second show is today. Um, so I'm excited about continuing to do that. I'm in this for the long term. I mean, the fund is a four-year fund. I, I, I'm in for four years at least, right, which is an eternity in this space. And uh, we intend to invest for the long term ask great questions, support good founders, um, and just kind of raise the bar across uh, the whole industry. I'm really excited about what you're doing with the podcast, actually. I think that's such an interesting thing. Nobody else has done something quite like it. We are on, uh, in Peak, we are adding a segment which is NFT Insider, uh, and we are going to be bringing people, not necessarily performant, but also actually mostly postman and to come in and explain about, okay, now we've, we've raised this money, what we are doing with it, where we're nice. going with it. So, so it's one of the things that, um, I, it, and I got the inspiration when I, after Moonbirds, I created a session where I explained my take on, um, it was called Moonbirds Insider and, and explaining about, you know, my understanding of Moonbirds. Whoa. So one of the things that um, you mentioned earlier, uh, which is quite important for people to know, and I guess I know that as a founder myself, that 
things move so fast in this space that if you are not in the company for even like a few weeks, things will have changed so fast. Things will have moved so fast that there will be a lot of things that you wouldn't know about. So uh, I think, you know, a lot of times you say, um, I've heard you say in different podcasts that I know the proof team very well. That doesn't mean that you know what's going on there right now because things move so fast. It changes like every week. It's yeah. just the space moves so fast. So Absolutely. I love that you're doing that in the show though and helping educate people yeah yeah no that's very exciting so um one of the questions that people have been asking was about oddities i mean the oddities drop and um you know the the whole fight around it it's it's been really disheartening i found it really upsetting i have to say you know because i think that first of all Proof doesn't owe anybody anything, you know, they are doing these um, perks. And I think sometimes people are, um, I don't know if you agree with me, but I, I feel like people are having misconceptions between perks and utility. You know, the perks are nobody owes it to you. You know, they are something that it's just a fun thing that, that they are doing. I, I don't know how many other projects are doing that. Like I've, I've been holding doodles for quite a while and I've never had a perk like that, you know, and um, I don't think, I mean, I don't have uh, any of the Yuga assets, but I don't think they do these types of perks. So, um, so what's your thoughts on that? Like this whole thing around all these, you know, people, um, having incredible expectations. Um, first of all, in regards to the price dropping, the way I see it is that it's very simple. Before the reveal, you are betting on getting, you know, some uh, rare assets, right? And then after the reveal, uh, you know, then it becomes clear whether you have rare assets or not. And then, you know, then, then always the price drops, right? Uh, and also we are in the bear market. We are in a difficult time in the market. So I don't know what people expected, but why do you think um, this whole thought happened and, and what's your thoughts on that? So I think we all need to be longer term minded. So it, the important thing to me, so, so my whole investment thesis um, and the way I run 121G is thinking multi-year timeline, right? Um, and I think the important thing to do is bet on a good team and be less concerned about specific dynamics from specific assets from that team. So here's the way I look at oddities. Um, it was a free airdrop. Uh, it, they, you know, Justin and Kevin always said, this is an art-based drop. The artist is Gremplin. Um, Gremplin has never been known for some sort of utility-based token, right? So um, that was a clear sign that this is going to be art. It's going to be funky. It's going to be cute, right? Uh, so, so all the signs were there and the communication from the team was pretty clear. Um, but even then, you know, Let's just all think at least a couple of years out here, right? Are Kevin and Justin and the team going to deliver long-term value to their community? Of course, right? So I'm betting on that. Um, you know, I, we also bought in heavy to Tableland um, and bought 45 rigs. Like that team is very good, right? You know, the price has been all over the place. It was up 200%, you know, two days in and now it's back down to mint price it, or, or where we bought in. But none of that matters because we're thinking multi-years um, uh, in the future. So I just am ignoring uh, what I think is fairly short-term conversation around oddities and proof and moonbirds. It, it's just all a noise to me. Um, 
And that's not because I, I think people are not intelligent or, or not informed. I just think they're not looking further enough out. Right. Um, and so I've ignored most of it. Honestly, I, I didn't really check into the discord a whole lot. Um, uh, while that was going on. So um, I think if people bet on good teams and think long-term, they're going to be fine. Uh, I think short-term trading is very, very dangerous. And if you were short-term trading on oddities, you know, hoping for a three, four or five X, of course, that's not going to work out well for you. Um, so let's, let's all think longer term. Let's bet on good teams and let's be patient. What do you think is value when you say long-term value? How do you define value? In, in terms of these types of, like yep. for example, I bought my proof pass for $140,000 almost. And for me, I didn't buy it to make money from it. When I bought it, I didn't know about Grails. I didn't fully understand. I still don't fully understand Grails. <laughs> like I keep telling the people in uh, in the Discord, can you please explain Grails to me? You know, and they're like, it's this exciting thing that happens and we all speculate on who is the you know artist behind it. Um, so it sounds a lot of fun, but I didn't think about any of that. I thought about this is going to be a community of serious um, you know, NFT collectors. I want to get to know them. A lot of them are also builders in the space. For example, now we are going to have uh, Brendan Mulligan coming on our uh, on on our platform to uh, give presentations. Uh, Zeneca is coming on our platform. Like today, actually, he's got a, a session. So I got into that because I wanted to meet these people, get you know, build closer relationships, and you know, that for me is value. Like I wasn't thinking about monetary return in that sense. Right. So, so how do you define value? I define value in two ways, and they're they're not binary. Um, I think one is financial gain. Um, I think we would be not. I think we would be uh, sort of lying to ourselves if we said that people didn't buy into NFT projects hoping to make profit. That's most of what people are doing, right? Um, and they really are hoping that they'll buy at this amount of ETH and sell at this amount of ETH. And meanwhile, hoping that the value of ETH goes up. Right. Um, and that's fine. That's what 121G is doing. Right. We are literally investing in projects, you know, so I can return large amounts of profit to my investors. And I'm very clear about that. Um, however, I think the reason why NFTs are so special is because in addition to potential profit, more importantly, you get community. And so, you know, as humans, I believe that we've evolved to be tribalistic and we really want to be a part of a tribe and we want to feel included. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at a community like Proof, it's only a thousand people. It's all people who are passionate about NFTs. Um, you know, the tone of the entire community is inclusive and kind and friendly and, and smart, right? And so being a part of that community is valuable for being included as a human. Um, and I think that is very important to your mental stability and happiness. So I think in, in community inclusion and then financial gain are the two primary pillars uh, of the industry. Um, but the third, you know, is digital ownership, right? So I think the ability to actually own a digital asset and uh, have that be irrevocably true is very powerful. Um, and that's why we're betting on the, on the NFT industry as a whole. Um, I think you need both inclusion, community, and financial gain for a project to really succeed long-term. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm confident, um, you know, projects like Proof are going to deliver both over the long-term, but I think you have to be patient. 
Um, I think short-term flipping is just very, very dangerous. It's, it's gambling, straight up. And gambling, nothing's wrong with gambling. Uh, but I think people need to be clear. Am I gambling or am I investing? Or am I just wanting to be included in a community? Or is it a mix of the three? And how am I uh, strategizing based on that? Yeah, definitely. I think having that clarity is so important. So with regards to the financial gain part, it's um, it's a bit of a gray area because on the one hand, we are trying to say that these tokens are not security. Um, on the other hand, we all know that they are likely to go up in price. So um, what are your thoughts on, on the regulations around this? And why was it that you needed your investors at uh, 121G to uh, be accredited? And because that's, that was quite interesting to me because yeah. typically you don't need to be accredited to buy. The reason why is I'm, I'm planning on the entire NFT industry being regulated. And I'm, I'm planning on most of these projects being classed as securities, right? Because they, I think they are, right? You, you're almost, it's almost like uh, angel investing, right? You put money into a project like Proof uh, and, and what you're really doing is giving that company capital to grow. And so that is angel investing, right? The, the, it, so I'm planning at being a security. That's why we went over and above to be legally compliant from a securities law perspective. You know, we, we use AngelList as our fund admin uh, we are a 506C fund. We only can accept accredited or qualified purchasers. Like this is no joke. You know, I, I think folks who think they can throw money into a DAO and it's all going to work out are are being naive. Um, the the SEC and the and the U.S. government is going to come in and regulate. I, I I strongly believe that, and I think that's a good thing. Um, and I think we should be very very prepared for that. Uh, I am. I definitely hope that um, if they do uh, regulate and when they do regulate, that they don't necessarily look at it from the lens of securities in the old uh, sense of the word. Yeah, because that will that will keep a lot of people out of the. What do they say? That cat is out of bag. Cat's out of the bag. No, <laughs> but, but, you, but you don't you don't need to be accredited to buy on Robinhood for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So so you can still buy securities legally in the US without being accredited, right? And you do that through a platform like Robinhood or Schwab, right? And millions of people do that. So so the, the, the difference is that to invest in a venture fund, right, that's regulated as a 506 or 506, 506C or B, yeah, you absolutely have to be accredited because the government's trying to protect investors from shady uh, VCs you know, who are raising money and promising crazy things to investors who are not sophisticated. Um, now, I think the accredited investor and qualified purchaser definitions uh, are too primitive anyway. Like just because you're accredited doesn't mean you're, you're sophisticated and just because you're sophisticated doesn't mean you're accredited, right? But here we are at, and I think we should all uh, comply with the law and be very careful about these things. Yeah, definitely. I get that. I uh, I live in the UK. It's a little bit different here. Like here, you can you can self certify, which is what I did uh, when I invested in a, a wearable technology company uh, a while back. And you just say, look, I know what I'm doing, and I can I can afford take to take the risk. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, I like that. I wish the US was more like that. Yeah, I I wish so uh, as well. Um, okay, uh, then one of the other questions is. 
for you, your transition from being the COO of Proof Moonbirds to starting your fund, tell, tell me a little bit about that transition. What did you have to do? What, what changes did you have to make? Um, so I had to pay lawyers a lot of money <laughs> to, to set up the fund. You know, being legally compliant, doing things properly is super expensive. Um, so I hired one of the best firms in the industry to make sure we were doing everything correctly. That's the same firm that, that did uh, 6529's Angelus Rolling Fund. So that was thing one, got a, a great team to make sure we're being legally compliant. Uh, number two, um, you know, began to set up the entire fund infrastructure. There's a lot of accounting and, and auditing you have to do. I mean, it took months um, uh, to set up. And uh, so it's just a lot of busy work, you know, a lot of uh, legally compliant work. Um, and then, and then it, also laying the groundwork for the podcast and and setting up, you know, one really time intensive thing was the Ledger Enterprise setup. So, um, you know, obviously everyone knows by now you should be using a hardware wallet, right? Not a hot wallet for your most valuable assets. Most people use Ledger because I think it's the best. Uh, we went a step further and and invest in Ledger Enterprise, which is um, enterprise grade uh, uh, protection and quality. It's it's still self-custodial. So Ledger doesn't own our assets, um, but it, it, it was expensive and time-consuming, but I'm so glad we've done it. Um, so, you know, I don't hold any of our wallets personally, right? They're all stored off-site in secure bank vaults. You know, you can't do anything unless you have three different locations coordinated. I mean, there's a lot to that. Um, and I just took a lot of time. Yeah, I can imagine it, it must have been quite a lot of work. One of the um, Moonbirds uh, said that she liked it when you uh, were sweeping the floor and, and buying a lot of Moonbirds, but she worries about what you would do with it in the end, you know, uh, like getting rid of them uh, and how that would, if, uh, that would affect. I know that I told her that I think I know the answer because you mentioned something about fractionalizing in the end. So can you explain a little bit exactly what you're going to do with all these um, uh, different NFTs that you're buying? You bet. So my number one choice is fractionalization. So uh, for those that are listening that haven't come across that, what you basically do is you take a wallet that is full of assets um, and you break that wallet up into shares. Um, and so, for instance, you know, we own 34 Moonbirds, 45 Tableland Rigs, 10 Tiger Bobs. Uh, uh, we're, we're attempting to buy a proof pass at the moment. You know, you take all those things and you mark them up to fair market value. Um, which we have two different methods that we use for that right now. And then you would divide that into, say, 10,000 shares, right? And then what you do is you effectively sell those shares. Um, and so the great thing about that option is we don't have to sell the, uh, the NFTs, right? So uh, we can stay in all those projects technically, but my investors can get liquidity. So it, it almost feels like an IPO in, in a sense. Um, so that's my number one hope. I think in four years' time, when the fund winds down, I think fractionalization is going to be very sophisticated. I'm very excited about that. Um, if we have to sell out of a project, you know, we're obviously going to do that very carefully because we can't drive down the value of that project. Otherwise, we'll hurt ourselves. Um, so it's very much in our self-interest to not drive down the floor of a project. Um, so people need to understand that we're not just going to dump you know, 34 moonbirds on the floor because that will destroy our investment. Um, so there's a lot of forethought that needs to go into that. Are you aware of how much impact you have on the market? Like, for example, people were saying, 
about oddities that you didn't buy oddities. So therefore there must be something wrong. You know that like, you know, that it's just like people really look at your wallet on a day-to-day basis. They talk about it on various discords and that must be a lot of pressure, but Mm -hmm. also I don't know if this is healthy, man. Like this is, it's, it's just like, People are really putting so much weight. And, and I wonder with, with now you doing these um, podcast uh, interviews live as well, you know, like if you interview somebody from a project and then you decide not to buy into that project, that's, that could potentially be very detrimental to them. Yep. So do you think this is a good thing? Or, or what's your thoughts on, on the impact you're having on the market? I think we need to be very thoughtful and careful. Um, I don't take this lightly. Um, so, uh, I think it requires a lot of care, a lot of thought, um, a lot of planning, a lot of research and a lot of communication. Um, so for instance, when we bought into Moonbirds, I was telling people months beforehand, right? This is my plan. This is what we're going to do. This is why I'm doing it. Um, and I've also been very clear. I'm not a short-term trader, right? So if you're following my trades and expecting, you know, to profit quickly, I don't think that's going to work out well for you. Um, so that's one thing, communicating very clearly as much as possible. Um, I, 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 I want people should understand like these kind of things are happening right now in venture capital. So the way venture capital works is you have a network of VCs. They talk to each other, right? People, under, people know if someone's buying into a company and people follow, right? So this already happens, right? And it's legal. Um, as long as they're not sharing insider information early, right? So part of this is just the maturation of this industry. Yes, there's going to be VCs like me. Yes, people are going to follow me. Uh, yes, my moves are going to affect things. Um, that is inevitable. Um, but we're going to be thoughtful and careful. I mean, there's big traders out there like Pranksy, right? Who who wildly affect the market. And Pranksy, you know, has never said that he or she cares about you know, affecting the larger market thereafter the largest uh, gain, right? Whereas we, as a 121G, we're trying to be very thoughtful about the whole industry and being careful not to adversely affect projects unnecessarily. Now, the other important thing um, is that uh, we're doing the podcast to help people identify good projects and understand good questions to ask. Um, And I think we're only going to invest in maybe one out of five of those. Now, that's not because the other projects are, are bad. It, we, I wouldn't have them on the show unless I, I thought they were high quality already. It just may be a timing thing. It may be um, a resource allocation thing. Um, for instance, our Q3 fund is allocated. Right? We, we, we don't have any more ETH to allocate this quarter. right? So I'm going to be interviewing people uh, like um, Cryptoys last week and um, Non-Fungible Film this week, who even if I like them, the fund can't deploy capital this quarter. Um, so I would encourage everybody do your own research, uh, like listen to podcasts where I'm communicating these things before you follow my trades, right? If people think, oh, Ryan interviewed cryptoids, but didn't deploy capital, he must not believe then they're not listening to what I'm saying, which is 121G doesn't have any more capital to deploy this quarter, you know, in Q3, maybe I'll buy into cryptoids. Maybe I won't, but, uh, um, at least know the facts, uh, before you follow a wallet. 
Yeah, that's so important. Thank you so much for making that clarification, because I think that could really adversely uh, affect some of the founders. But also this space is so small right now that, you know, it's just tiny. Like, so we know that um, I think roughly around the world, about 300 million people have got uh, any kind of crypto. And then within the NFT space, less than 2 million NFT um, holders, right? And then probably around a million of them have done any kind of trade uh, whatsoever and then the active traders are even smaller so it's just such a small space right now that even a small movement like literally a handful of people could really impact um, the space which actually brings me to a question that this space um, being so small um, the majority of movers and shakers are white male like I, I don't think I know any major project like in the top uh, five or ten that are founded by for example black um artists uh, uh you know whether male or women or maybe i'm wrong but I, nothing stands out for me right so what are your thoughts on the impact of um the fact that the, the perspective is very very white male in in this space i think you're absolutely right you know and it's just a perpetual cycle right so you know, uh, the power structures in the world are controlled by white men, primarily, certainly by men. And that's has been happening for, you know, thousands of years, right? And it's not good. And it's not healthy. And I, I, and I, I want all of us to make progress, you want all of us to make progress. So I absolutely agree with you, you know, web three is controlled still by web by white males, right? And that's not a good thing. And that's not good morally and that's not good for the industry right so um however i do think folks that are privileged like myself you know i i, I am an extremely privileged person right and i know that and i'm aware of that you know we invested into tiger bob right so now i think gossamer is an amazing artist and i think she's an amazing founder uh, and i vetted her right and so we bought into their project right and you know uh, she's a person of color. Um, she's an amazing artist. Like, yeah. So I'm trying to put my money where my mouth is and, and support project founders like that. Um, you know, did we deploy a huge amount of capital to Tiger Bob? No, but I did, you know, place, uh, you know, a bet because I believe in her. So I think the more we can do that, the better. Um, but this isn't really going to change until, you know, folks that are are cut out of the system right now, you know, get into the system by building wealth. Um, so uh, I, I want to continue to do what I can to lift those folks up. I remember reaching out to you on uh, Twitter and asked, you know, do you do any kind of influencer work? And this is what I meant by it. A lot of white male founders, people like yourself, people listen to you, right? And, and if you talk about a topic or a, a project, you know, that people really pay attention. It's much, much harder to get that same level of attention if you don't look like uh, people who are, you know, within. And, and it's one of the reasons why I bought in a proof pass because, and I'm very active there. And um, I've noticed that there are only a handful of women uh, in, in the proof community and probably only 
three of us are like regularly posting every day. It's like me, Rachel, uh, and uh, Yuko. You know, the three of us are the only women that every day, oh, maybe, and one other lady from New Zealand, you know, like literally like a handful of us that post every day. What do you think can be done here? Do you think that women themselves also really need to step up? You know, this is one of the things I always say, but then when I do talk about it, then they're like, but I don't have, you know, that amount of money to, to pay, to get into yeah. a community. To, it's like a vicious cycle. I'd love to know from your point of view, you know, when you look at the women in your family and in, in the people around you, what are your thoughts on, on what women can do themselves right. and women and people of color? So I don't, I don't think the work should be placed on the shoulders of women or people of color at all. I, I think f- from what I can tell, you're working very hard already you're you know so i think the the work and the responsibilities on the shoulders of folks who are already privileged and already part of the system right because we can open doors right uh the doors are closed right and you can't get through them if they're closed no matter how hard you push right so i i think it's about being proactive and looking for talent and opportunity as a privileged person right so you know when we were hiring for proof I worked very hard to proactively reach out to communities that have been systematically left out to hire from, right? Because I know there's extreme talent. Um, uh, maybe they don't know about the job. You know, maybe they're not into NFTs. Like, I mean, there's so many things that privilege gives you that that you have to think about. What if you don't have privilege? You probably, maybe you don't even know what an NFT is, right? But you could be an amazing employee of the company, right? So I think it's it's about proactively working. Uh, as a person of color, as sorry, as a, as a white uh, male who's privileged to open doors up and let amazing talent have a chance, right? America was founded on this idea of equal opportunity, but the truth is there isn't equal opportunity at all, right? I mean, you can't even like, you know, you have to, it's like a race where you're starting like three laps behind, like, well, that's not equal opportunity, right? So um, I believe in, in trying to open the door and how to do that boy, that, you know, there's a million different things that need to be done. And most of them are small behind the scenes, not big gestures, donating money or making big statements. It's about uh, opening doors. The reason why I I was talking about people themselves also having, um, you know, taking a step, like I come from the exact opposite of you. Like I, if you see a picture of where I was born, you, you wouldn't believe where I am now. Um, nobody around me spoke English. I was born in Tehran during the Iran-Iraq war. I had um, none of these privileges. I had, um, my parents had never left uh, their hometown. I haven't seen them now for 17 years of my family. I have no family in the UK. I came here by myself with one suitcase, paid for my own education. When I was in Iran, I started working since I was 14. I was always an entrepreneur. I, I taught myself English. And then I started working as a tour guide. And when European tourists came to uh, the UK, I was like, you know, their tour guide. So then I would take them into uh, Shiraz and Isfahan and, and they would buy things like Persian rugs. And then I started learning that I could take um, a, a commission on those. So uh, and at that time, I didn't even have a phone, right? So like I, I started building these relationships with the, these like really expensive drug dealers, not drug dealers, drug dealers, right. <laughs> you, know, you know, and um, by the time I arrived in the in the hotel uh, in Isfahan, let's not even talk about the fact that, for example, in Iran, because I was uh, a woman, I couldn't stay in a hotel without having 
a letter from my dad, even though I was working, that would say, you know, that I was allowed to travel on my own. When I arrived in Isfahan, I had to go to the police station and show them my letter from my dad, you know, and then they would stamp that and I would have to take that to the hotel to, to allow me to stay. It was like right. a, a nightmare. So, so <laughs> how can anyone accuse you of not working hard enough? I mean, nobody ever does with me because, you know, I, people can see, but like people don't know these stories. Most people don't know these stories. And one day I'm going to write my, you know, autobiography and I'm going to make it a comedy because it's so dark, you know, like, like I was then, you know, forced to marry my cousin when I was 17. It was like, so it's just honestly it's so dark that when I talk about it, I have to laugh about it because otherwise it's just so difficult. But with all of those things, my point is that with all of those things, I got myself into you know, I, I started working for um, European embassies because I, I was doing a good job as a tour guide. Then they gave me a job in, in the Dutch embassy that changed my life and then worked for United Nations Then came to the UK because I earned money in dollars and I was spending in real. So I was able to actually uh, save a lot of money to, you know, to bring here and pay for my own education. And after that, I became a TV producer. Then I started my own marketing agency, worked with Steinway Pianos, which is my biggest client to this date. And then I started in peak, it went into Web3. So every penny that I earned, you know, and, and I've, so far I've raised about $1.2 million for my startup and, wow. uh, you know, closed our pre-seed funds. And like, literally I had nobody, I didn't know anyone. And I literally created one connection after another, one connection after another and built my own network. That's why I, I tell people that right is not something they give you. Right is something you take. You have to reach out. You have to ask for it because otherwise, you know, nobody's going to give it to you. People are not going to come to you. You know, you have to put yourself out there. Like that's so inspirational. And I, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm floored by that, that you've done all that. That's amazing. Thank you. But yeah, so I, I think like it goes both ways, right? So if, if Mohammed doesn't come to the mountain, you bring him right. Mountain, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you should both be working towards that, right? Yes. It's not your job by yourself. It's not our job by yourself. It is definitely, uh, definitely a collaboration. Yeah, if we want to change things. So um, Grips also, uh, who is one of our uh, proof holders, he says that how do you select projects to invest in and how do you calculate how much percentage of your pool of funds you're allocating to them? And also, okay, that's an interesting one. What do you do with the airdrops and rewards, such as nesting rewards? Yep. So um, the way we identify project founders uh, is by applying a rubric um, with uh, details like, is the founder doxxed? Do they have experience shipping products uh, at a company? Um, what are the plans for the project? Um, you know, can I get a Zoom call with them to talk through things first? You know, there's, there's, it feels a lot like angel investing. And so all the questions that that I like to ask uh, projects before we deploy capital are, are going to be asked on the podcast, right? There's, I think, over 20 of them. Um, and so they need to pass, you know, almost all of those questions acceptably, number one. Number two, uh, you know, I, I've been a founder CEO for about two decades. And so, like, I can pattern match on, on the type of founder they are, right? Are they gritty enough to go through these bigs up and up and down. And we've seen this with Kevin and Justin. I mean, the, the, you know, the, 
the cycle of FUD and elation and is just wild. And it's, it's really taxing, you know, so can a founder get through that? Right. Um, and then if they pass all those bars, then I think, well, what kind of multiple do, do I think I can get on this project? Right. If I deploy, you know, X amount of capital, do I really believe it can go to, you know, X times three or X times five? Is that, does that feel possible? Um, and that's a gut instinct. Um, and then if, if those things are true, then it's about, well, when are they minting or have they already minted? Um, and where do I think it's going from here? Um, and then the percentage of capital allocated depends on, uh, a couple things. Number one, how much capital can we responsibly deploy into the project? Right? So I think owning uh, 1% of a project is about the ceiling, right? If you own more than 1% of a project, it can be problematic. Um, and so the idea is to go in and, and buy up to 1%, you know, of the project and then hold. Um, so that depends on, on mint price, on floor price, on secondary. So for instance, you know, we swept 45 table and rigs. Yeah. It was about 1.5% of the project. Um, and, uh, so there's all, those are all the things that I think about, you know, with Moonbirds is very different, right? We deployed over 700 ETH, um, because I have strong conviction that we're going to go up from there, but, but look at today, the floor is down. I think it's at 20 now, which is below where we bought. However, we bought ETH at 1050. So actually we're up like, you know, there's, there's all these things you have to think about as an investor. So, um, but again, we're long-term minded. I'm, I'm hoping that we hold for four years on, on all these projects. So actually you mentioned about, um, this was a question I had actually about when you get the money from your investors, you got it in ETH. Did you sell no, we got it in US? We got it in USDC actually. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and so again, this is cause we have to be legally compliant. It turns out the SDC is not okay with people sending ETH to a fund. Um, they can send us dollars or USDC. So we were lucky, right? If I had raised ETH, you know, earlier and it, I mean, a drop from, you know, 3000 down to a thousand, it would have really uh, been bad for the fund, but thankfully we raised in USDC and we bought at the bottom. So that was lucky. You, you had a question about airdrops too. The, the yeah. goal for airdrops is to hold them. So ideally, you know, the projects we're investing in are high quality projects that are airdropping good assets and, and we hold those. Um, there is a big, big important thing to think about, which is cost basis. So um, as a fund, we care very much that the cost basis is zero um, on those. If, if there's a cost basis, it becomes a tax nightmare. Um, so those are some things that I think about, um, but the plan is to generally hold, right? I, I assume we're getting Ravens. I assume there's going to be a token. Like I assume, you know, the Moonbirds are going to yield a lot of additional assets and we're just going to hold those. Is there a reason why you didn't go for, you know, other established uh, projects? Let's say, for example, I, I, I remember during your um, Twitter spaces, I asked you about Yuga, you answered that you said, because they're not, you know, that you haven't had any kind of connection with them, et cetera. But for things like Doodles, for example, is there a reason why you haven't deployed capital into those or do you think you will? Um, it's primarily because I haven't been able to meet with the founders and have an in-depth conversation with, with them. Um, and I really wanted to deploy as much capital as we could into Moonbirds because I, I already know the project's good, right? I know the founders, uh, you know, I have a general understanding of the plan, right? So so that was like, let's take as much of the Q3 fund as we can and put it into Moonbirds. And there just wasn't extra ETH left over to invest heavily in. 
you know, say a doodles or a cool cats or, or a, a yuga. Um, but if we had additional capital, then what I would want to do is get a meeting, sit down, talk to those founders and say, what's your plan? You know, and I have to feel really comfortable with it. I think in Q4, um, you know, we will be deploying more capital and it will be into projects that I've met with and that meet our very high bar. Um, uh, and, you know, Tableland was one of those. It's like in, inside proof, you know, they, they had done interviews. Um, we had an understanding of the founders. They passed all of my quality bars. Um, and I'm very convinced that the technology they're building is, is going to change the industry, right? So that's kind of the way I think about it. I guess a couple of last questions. What upcoming features and ideas in the NFT space are you most excited about? I'm really bullish on uh, leaders who have built a large following already that uh, care deeply about their community um, and want to launch a token-gated uh, community around that. Um, I think there's a lot of upside on that. Um, and then I think layering on NFTs into physical space using AR it, um, and then stacking those NFTs is going to be very exciting. Um, so those are a couple of things I'm really bullish on. But this is very much like angel investing. You know, the types of projects I'm seeing are all very different. Um, and they're also deploying on different blockchains. You know, crypto is that we had in our first show is deploying on Flow. Um, you know, so there's a lot of different uh, things we can bet on. And uh, I'm really trying to be mentally elastic around where I see value and where we deploy capital. Okay, last question. Uh, this will be a selfish question for myself so that I can learn your thoughts. And so I'm building a um, educational platform. How do you see NFTs playing a role in the education space? Right now, I'm making a lot of things free so that people come and discover it. Um, but eventually we need to be able to obviously monetize that. And we also have the option for people to buy a normal annual membership. But um, I know that in the NFT space, in, in the Web3 space, most people much prefer uh, you know, connecting with your wallet, etc., and accessing everything. So we're going to have a simple NFT. It's going to be like just a membership you know, card, no uh, special artwork. Let's say we, we do an initial 3,000 drop and then we want to increase it to another 5,000 or 10,000, et cetera, and keep growing it. How do I balance that as we add new tiers to the fact that people always expect the next drop to be, you know, like diluting almost the, the ecosystem? Mm. How would that work for an educational platform, would you say? What topics are you teaching? Everything to do with emerging technologies. So right now, a lot of it is around Web3 and Metaverse. But uh, as we go forward, um, I want to be able to cover other areas of emerging technologies, including, for example, genomics, health, uh, and all that stuff as well. So I think the future is in rebuilding LinkedIn for Web3. I think that's where the innovation truly happens, where the skills that you learn are truly... Uh, skills you own and you can prove that you have, right? So it, it essentially replacing the resume, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. So I've exactly. learned the skill and they would probably look like badges, which would be uh, NFTs, but they're not non-fungible tokens in the sense that they, they can only, which you could sell, they're attached to you, right? Or like um, POAPs so and, and, and things. Like, like POAPs, yeah. yeah. That's Whereas exactly I, what I have in mind. If, if you look at our... <laughs> our pitch deck, I have LinkedIn as our number one uh, competitor. So yeah. I hope they don't listen to this. Please don't listen to this LinkedIn. <laughs> well, they should acquire you, right? And 
I actually, um, so I ran a, a tech company for 10 years, right? We taught 600,000 people how to code online and, and I learned a lot about the space and people really were motivated by badges and points. And I think you could take that. I mean, and you could, you take badges as, as, as a POAP type uh, NFT and you have points as tokens, right? And you can build a real thing, right? Where, you know, companies are literally paying students to learn because they're learning technologies they need. Um, and actually Coinbase began to do this with their Coinbase Learn product. Um, so I think if you combine LinkedIn with Coinbase Learn, I, I think that's the future of ed tech in Web3. And I, I would love uh, to see you build that because I, I think the world needs it. Thank you. Thank you so much for the encouragement. Thanks for your time being here. Uh, I think when you speak, you speak so intelligently and and so clearly. I don't understand why people have got so much peace. They don't know me. It's okay. I'm fine. No, thank you so much. I mean, congrats on your success and, and thank you for telling me your personal story. I wasn't aware of that. And uh, it's very inspirational. I mean, you've worked 10 times harder than I have. It's super impressive. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ryan Carson. Be sure to follow him on Twitter if you aren't already and keep an eye out on his work and especially on his educational content. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. Finally, be sure to check out inpeak.xyz and the fantastic educational sessions that we have on emerging technologies and all things Web3.